Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website Evidence-Based Errata. You can also find me on Twitter at EBR underscore BFR, where I will, again, someday spend more time. You'll notice that I've taken Facebook out of the standard opening. I'm going to start weaning myself off of Facebook altogether. Frankly, the only thing I use it for anymore is the messenger feature. So there's still a page up for now, but I don't think I'll be returning anytime soon. Unless the site completely changes its stance on both violent rhetoric, especially from a certain person that they refuse to censor, primarily because it makes them money, and its policy on privacy and selling your data without real ways to opt out. I'm not suggesting that Twitter is particularly better, but it tries somewhat to be transparent about its, well, lack of trans, uh, lack of accountability, whereas Facebook just seems to be constantly obscuring its tactics. But you know what you can support instead of Facebook or Twitter or any other social media giant? Valley Free Radio. We are winding up our fun drive this week, and we could definitely use your support if you haven't already given. VFR is completely community-run and supported. This means we rely on your support to keep the lights on and the rent paid. You can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate in order to make a one-time pledge, or if you want to be a rock star, make a reoccurring pledge. Okay, so with that said, tonight's stories are going to be centered around recent events. It seems unwise to do otherwise. Now I'll get back to our regularly planned mix of weird and interesting science stories, hopefully next week, but I think it's important to talk about these things, and it's a topic that is right at home at this independent community-based radio station. Let's start out with a discussion of tear gas. I spent the last weeks watching live footage of protests in Minneapolis, Washington, D.C., Seattle, and a host of other places across the nation. I've seen police using tear gas against unarmed protesters who had their hands in the air. I've seen people who have lost eyes and have been very badly hurt by supposedly less lethal weaponry. You'll notice they call it less lethal and not non-lethal. So tonight I feel like I have to devote the show to stories that are related to, at least tangentially, concerns with the happenings here in the U.S. in the last few weeks. And that brings us back to the subject of tear gas. Tear gas is a chemical weapon which is banned for use in warfare. Now, there have been a chorus of um, voices calling for why it should be banned and exactly explaining exactly what it was. So let's talk about that for a little bit. The most common form used at present is 2-chlorobenzylidine melanotriol or CS gas. This is used in conjunction with capsaicin-based irritants. Tear gases effects include an intense, painful irritation of the eyes causing crying, spasm, and itching. If you're wearing contact lenses, the gas can actually get under the contacts and can potentially cause blindness. The chemical can also affect all parts of the body it touches. A scientific review from 2016 reported on a host of other health effects. 
For skin, the gas can cause redness, itching, rashes, and even oozing blisters. If inhaled, the gas causes fits of coughing that can cause choking and chest tightness, which can be especially dangerous to anyone with asthma or other breathing problems. And as we'll note again and again, in this current era, that can be very unfortunate for people who are either already infected with COVID-19 and may not even know it yet, or can cause people infected with COVID-19 to spread the virus to anyone close to them or trying to help them. A dose at close range can cause eye bleeding, tearing of the corneas, and possibly traumatic nerve damage. While the effects are supposed to be short-lived, the research to support this conclusion was actually conducted with early animal experiments and small studies with young, healthy men, mostly in the armed forces. Last year, Dan Kazeda, a security specialist, wrote in Nature, The line between civilian and military applications of these chemical agents is a fine one. Rules governing their use are confusing. Reference books and training materials continue to cite toxicology studies from the 1950s, and those were done on animal and soldiers, animals and soldiers, not the public. A study from 2014 of people in Turkey, on which these sorts of uh, agents are often used, unfortunately, found that subjects exposed to tear gas were twice as likely to have breathing problems than those who were in a control group and were also at greater risk of developing chronic bronchitis. It can, again, also potentially make people more susceptible to subsequent COVID-19 infection by damaging the lungs because one of the big factors for susceptibility to developing really bad complications with COVID-19 is to have problems with your lungs. Now, studies have also documented mass chemical burns caused by the grenades or heavy doses, as well as severe eye injuries. And so I'm sure you've all seen at least one of the stories about someone having lost an eye. We know tear gas has caused death and permanent injuries, which can be debilitating. Again, sometimes it's from being hit at close range with the grenade, and I've seen people hit with these grenades in the last weeks. Some launchers can cause grenades to get to over 200 miles per hour. The CDC has actually noted specifically that tear gas can cause immediate death from severe burns to the throat and lungs. Now, CS is the worst, But there's also pepper spray or capsaicin anum, the more commonly used chemical agent against protesters and others who police officers deem to be non-compliant. And so this can be either as a spray or as uh, pepper balls shot from basically a um, paintball gun, several ways to... uh, use this capsaicin. Studies have linked inhaling large doses to adverse cardiac, respiratory, and neurological effects, including arrhythmias and sudden death. The worst exposure to tear gas and pepper spray are most associated with indoor use and on people with pre-existing respiratory conditions like asthma. 
Though some police training manuals suggest not using it indoors, we know that they do, including an infamous story from the last week's which was of a man in Washington, D.C., who was actually trying to shelter protesters fleeing pepper spray, who then had police shoot CS tear gas into his home. And so that is just, it's terrible. The U.S. has few regulations on how these chemical agents should be deployed. And the U.S. is a manufacturer of and exporter of these chemicals as well. Tear gas is often used without proper care for consequence of employment. Many of the uses seen in previous days are problematic. Tear gas is originally meant to disperse crowds, but many crowds have legal have legal rights to as- of assembly, Kazeta told Gizmodo via email. And that's, of course, a big thing as well, is that the rights of people to actually peaceably accept assemble have been being severely curtailed. And I have seen video after video where the violence starts because the police start to try and disperse crowds that were otherwise peaceful using tear gas, using pepper spray, shooting rubber bullets at them and just otherwise being extremely authoritarian and, frankly, out of control. Peter Chin Hong, an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Francisco, notes the obvious problem, again, with shooting tear gas into a crowd where people might have COVID-19. Suppose somebody had COVID-19 and they're being gassed with tear gas. What's going to happen? Well, they're going to be coughing more. They're going to be spreading all those droplets over the place. They're going to be shouting with pain. That's a no-brainer. He actually created an open letter for public health experts to sign and express their solidarity with the protesters and to talk about strategies to lower the risk of COVID-19 during such protests. And so one of the big things that I've seen um, that is unfortunate um, and I, I kind of want to be out there, uh, being a COVID-19, uh, cheerleader in the sense of don't get it. Uh, a lot of times I would see whenever someone went to speak, they would pull their mask down, which I understand, but sometimes they were doing that in close quarters with who they were talking to. Um, and that is not the best idea. Um, you should definitely be trying to keep your mask on if at all possible. Uh, I know that it can somewhat, uh, distract from your voice, but definitely you need to try and keep it on as much as possible. And so, of course, there was that weird uh, announcement by the World Health Organization about uh, non um, about people not presenting any uh, symptoms who might be. Uh, infected nonetheless, not being good uh, conductors of infection, but uh, they have already quickly walked that back because um, the data is really not there to make such a conclusion. So the best thing to still do is to wear your mask whenever you are outside, whenever you are around people. And so it's really important. If we all were wearing masks, all the time when we were interacting with other people, 
we would really, really, really severely restrict the further spread of COVID. Um, and unfortunately that's not happening as we know, but, um, it's still, uh, it remains to be seen what's going to happen. Um, because there's a lot of states that have tried to reopen and a lot of them are not, uh, enforcing real solid rules for wearing masks social distancing and things like that. And I'm just worried that we're going to have another massive wave um, if something doesn't happen to change that. All right, let's get back to what we were talking about, though. Um, it seems insane to me that chemical agents that have been banned in warfare are considered okay for domestic usage. I think partially... Uh, People think, well, it's less lethal and therefore okay. Some of them think that, oh, you can't possibly be uh, severely injured by a rubber bullet or by a little bit of pepper spray. Um, and it's just not true. They are still potentially lethal. And I also think that it has something to do with the usage that most of us may have been exposed to. And that's stories about things like supposedly violent protests being broken up or the other main use for CS gas is during prison riots or to subdue prisoners. And unfortunately, in this country, we are used to the idea that inmates can be treated as less than human. And so I think that we have become somewhat desensitized, and I'm hoping that with what people have seen in the last few weeks, they've become resensitized and realized that this is not an okay practice and that we really need to curtail it. Now, just a reminder that uh, we are wrapping up our fund week fun drive week and every little bit helps. You can help by donating at valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Uh, that helps us keep amplifying the voices of people who are not given a platform by mainstream media. I certainly appreciate the fact that I'm able to do this show. Um, a leftist who talks about science is not exactly uh, <laughs> the pitch that most radio shows would be interested in, um, but I'm able to broadcast on Valley Free Radio because of all of the wonderful people who help support it and keep everything running and giving this community a unique product. So again, that's valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay, let's move on now and talk about the idea of race and racism. Now, I'd actually like to take a less well-tread uh, path through this subject for tonight, just because, you know, there's a lot that people talk about. Uh, there's much better talk from many other people on the subject of race relations in America. Um, there are several bibliographies that have been put out recently by people, obviously, but I wanted to talk about something that's a little less talked about. <laughs> so I want to talk about race and racism in the classical world. And so I thought that it would be really interesting to talk about that, uh, be especially since there's been kind of this resurgence of 
white supremacists and their uh, symbolism using classical sculpture. And so I think it's important to talk about. Now, again, it might seem like kind of a tangent, but modern white supremacy is grounded in ideas of a line connecting modern white people to the classical world and the quote-unquote foundations of Western civilization. And of course, that precludes all sorts of other amazing civilizations that have uh, lived and created and flourished and continue to do things even up until modern times. Um, I think that the emphasis on Western civilization is one of the greatest um, disservices that has happened in the world. And it's also a great way to show how race is a construct that changes over time and which is absolutely a product of the culture in which it is created and named. And so we know, for instance, that race is absolutely 100% a social construct. There are certain populations that share phenotypes in large part, but that does not mean that they are a separate race from other people. We are so genetically similar to one another that it is ridiculous to suggest that the degree of melanin in our skin has any real impact on the way that we are able to interact in this world, our ability to learn, our ability to do things. Yes, some people have specific adaptations. Uh, for instance, the people of Nepal are much better at gaining oxygen from the thin air at the, you know, in the Himalayas, but that does not make them not human. There is only one race, and that is the human race. And it's extremely frustrating when we are continually being told that white people are somehow different from all of the other people on this planet because of some magical thinking reason that connects us to, again, this sort of idealized world of the classics where you have Greece and Rome, empire and democracy, and that we are the direct descendants of that lineage. And a lot of us are just frankly not. <laughs> um, my ancestors are uh, all, we're all Gauls. <laughs> Um, and so I don't have any claim to, uh, the legacy of Greece and Rome, but of course I don't need to lay claim to the legacy of Greece and Rome because it's not my legacy. It's not any of our legacies, unless you are actually a, uh, person who is descended from actual Greeks or Romans. And even then... Greece and Rome are very long ago, and we should be focusing on modern times and on modern achievements at this point, which have been contributed to by people of all walks of life and all colors. And the idea that there aren't amazing people of other races, or sorry, of other colors, see, 
it's so easy to slip into the idea that there are other races because we've made it such a point in all of our conversations. But the idea that people who are African American, who are African, who are Asian American or Asian, who are South American or uh, Latino or anywhere else, that those people lack anything because they're not white. It's just ridiculous. And of course, lots of them are white. And um, it's just, it's a ridiculous notion that people who are not completely white-skinned and blue-eyed and blonde-haired have any kind of deficiency. Um, and I can't believe that we're still talking about it in the 21st century. It's very, very frustrating. Okay, sorry, bit of a tangent there. Let's get back to uh, really Greece and Rome. So one of the most overt connections to the supposed idea that white civilization began in Greece and Rome actually turns out to be a lie. And I've talked about this before. We are used to seeing bare white classical sculptures that are easy to project ideas of white superiority onto. However, the fact is that we see most of this ancient artwork in a form that it wouldn't originally have been presented in. Again, I've spoken about this. The fact is that Greek and Roman sculptures would once have been painted in bright, realistic colors. They would have had skin tones, not all white skin tones. Uh, they would have had brightly colored costumes. They would have had all sorts of life and interest to them. They wouldn't just have been these stark white marble uh, creations. The idea of the lily-white marble sculpture is largely a product of Victorian sensibilities and nationalist ideas projected onto these artworks, despite ample evidence that they were once covered in pigment. And we know that older art historians knew that they had once been covered in pigment, and they occasionally mentioned it, but for the most part, they treated them as they are now. And so... It led to such bare white marble statues becoming a symbol for modern white supremacist movements. And there was actually a series um, not long ago of posters that went up on college campuses and they had all of these awful white supremacist slogans and they were all pictures of uh, Greek and Roman statues of uh, busts and heads of David and um, all sorts of other um, sculptures. And so they were very, very clearly making that connection between themselves and the classical world. Now, the classical world is just not claimed by extremists, however. The idea of Western civilization running from the Greeks to the Romans right through to modern America is rampant among the citizenry of this country, even if they don't immediately realize it. Because, of course, we have claimed superiority to any people who happen to be in the way of our manifest destiny. And it still permeates what we learn in school. University education and the Western civilization curriculum have been integral to forging a shared white elite identity for those who view revering of the... Ca- Revering of the canon 
of the and the great men within it as a cornerstone of the Western civilization narrative, notes Rebecca Fudo Kennedy, associate professor of classical studies at Denison University, on her blog Classics at the Intersections. Now, much of the early history of the U.S. is steeped in the idea that the ideals of Greece and Rome were being perpetuated in the American experience, or in the American experiment, excuse me. This is clear in the 19th century, for instance. Now, tying the idea of rugged individualism and white superiority to our modern crises, Ibrahim X. Kendi, founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University in Washington, D.C., and author of the book How to Be an Anti-Racist, explains how this was projected into the slaveholding uh, psyche. Slaveholders desired a state that wholly secured their individual freedom to enslave, not to mention their freedom to disenfranchise, to exploit, to impoverish, to demean, and to silence and kill the demeaned. The freedom to, the freedom to harm, which is to say in coronavirus terms, the freedom to infect. Slaveholders disavowed a state that secured any form of communal freedom, the freedom of the community from slavery, from disenfranchisement, from exploitation, from poverty, from all the demeaning and silencing and killing, the freedom from, the freedom from harm, which is to say in coronavirus terms, the freedom from infection. He goes on to write, the history of the United States, the history of Americans, is the history of reconciling the unreconcilable, individual freedom and community freedom. There is no way to reconcile the enduring psyche of the slaveholder with the enduring psyche of the enslaved. Now, that's a powerful statement, um, and I think that there is some truth to it, but I think that we have to find some way in order to at least come to a middle ground, because otherwise we are going to continue to have these kinds of um, clashes just over and over and over again between those who believe in the freedom to and those who seek the freedom from. And those kinds of ideas are right from classical Greek and Roman philosophy and public discourse and political oration. Um, and so you can really see right where we are connecting to that legacy. Okay, before we go on, I want to take a little break. We're going to come back to this when we come back, but I do want to take a break, do some show promos and some um, PSAs, and also to remind you that this would be a good time to go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate and to donate to keep this and other shows that you enjoy listening to on the air at Valley Free Radio. Thanks. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. 
For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Dad, you're supposed to jump over the rope. <laughs> One more time. The smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 1-877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old, indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Okay. We're back, and you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. All right, so we know that the Greek and Romans didn't invent slavery. Now, slavery has existed since the first days of the beginning of organization towards what we now deem civilization of city-states. In the most ancient Mesopotamian city-states, there were already slave classes. And so the Greeks and Romans were continuing a sadly normal path there. However, the idea of what we now call racism was first truly explored and codified in ancient Greece and Rome. Now, the Greeks were more straightforward in their idea about uh, the structure of us versus them, and thus we'll talk about them probably a little bit more. The Romans had a more paradoxical idea about race and ethnicity. While Romans believed themselves superior to many other people, people from across the empire were able to become citizens and thus to become integrated into the body of the Roman polis. And so the Romans have a very interesting uh, (laughs) idea of who is Roman. Um, Who is Roman is very expandable. And, uh, but once you became Roman, then you also sort of, there was an idea that it was a bit of a transmogrification where now you, as a Roman, became superior to these other people, some of whom might be from the same area you once came from. And so it's a really interesting way to uh, sort of see how race and ethnicity can be very, very um, fungible. Okay, so... It's the Greeks who most parallel our modern problems with racism and xenophobia. Interestingly, the Athenians, the so-called founders of democracy, I mean, they did invent democracy, but 
<laughs> only for a select few. They were the most obsessed with the idea of who belonged to the group of quote-unquote Athenian citizens. The Athenians, obsessed with the idea of their ethnically pure indigenous status, promoted it in public speeches, in sculptures and paintings, in the architecture of the Erechtheum, on the Acropolis, and in pretty painted pots, writes Fudo Kennedy. The Athenians of the 5th century BCE believed themselves to be Adakathonis, which translates as born from the earth. This was the original version of blood and soil. They believed themselves to be superior to all others, including other Hellenes, including the Spartans, who were mere descendants of Helen, the mythical father of all other Greeks, who had immigrated to Greece. And so they understood themselves as, Hel as Hellenes, but as the original inhabitants of the area, that made them something greater than Hellenes. They created laws to strictly regulate immigrant populations within their borders. The Periclean Citizenship Law, passed around 451 BCE, restricted full citizenship rights to only those who were born from two Athenian citizens. Prior to this, one needed only to have their father have been an Athenian citizen. Now, it's suggested that one reason for this may have been a concern about immigrant craftsmen and merchants who Athenians felt were competing for their jobs. Sound familiar? However, unlike modern times where these ideas are frankly largely propaganda, we do know actually, that male citizens worked the same jobs as male immigrants and slaves, often working side by side with them and receiving the same pay. Now, many scholars will say that despite these regulations, immigrants still flooded the land because of the wealth and modernity of the Athenian state. However, the reality was at times much more grim. Citizens paid no taxes. The state was supported by taxes on non-Athenians. What was much worse, just five years or so after the law was passed, a shipment of grain was imported to the city to be distributed freely to citizens. The Athenians took this opportunity to interrogate whether or not people were truly citizens. Many who'd believed themselves citizens were actually turned out to be that they did not have the proper paperwork to be able to prove this. They were then purged from the rolls and sold into slavery, lest they benefit in the least from the wealth and prosperity of the Athenians. And in fact, many of those who fell under the rubric of quote-unquote immigrants were actually people who had lived on the land for generations, but did not qualify as citizens, as well as freed slaves who, of course, could not truly be considered immigrants since they had been sold and had no chance to pick where they lived. Failure to abide by the laws and to continuously pay taxes could lead to being sold into or returned to slavery. Those who helped in the apprehension of such non-citizens were even given a portion of the sale price, when the person was sold into bondage. 
In addition, an immigrant woman could be raped and murdered without legal recourse if she did not have any male relatives to represent her in the courts. Of course, the status of women in both Greece and Rome was almost non-existent to begin with, so it seems one can only imagine how much worse it was for immigrant women. Women were absolutely seen as inferior to men and were very much considered second class, even when they were full citizens. And in fact, Aristotle himself was an immigrant to Athens and was often in an unstable position, uh, partially due to his connections with Philip of Macedon, who at the time was their sworn enemy. Um, that didn't help him, but obviously not being a citizen was also uh, something that led to him being in a tenuous position. The Greeks were unmoved by the potential wealth or popularity or intelligence of non-citizens, and those who were granted privileges and wealth could easily be stripped of it all and sold into slavery at the whim of the citizenry. Now, some might suggest that this just shows how xenophobia can be successfully modeled. Athens was a great place. However, this did not work well for the Athenians. By the mid-4th century, Xenophon was writing that they should relax the rules in order to attract more immigrants because the empire was faltering financially. Now, by what exactly, what exactly did the Greeks say about others? We're going to talk about that, but I just do want to break in for one more second to remind you that we are doing our fun drive and we are a completely volunteer and community supported radio station. And so if you can help out at all, you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate to make a contribution. Okay. The classical world had a series of words for what we'd now de deem race and ethnicity. Ethnos, genos, phyla, gens, natio, etc. Of course, you might note we now use many of these words for the classification system in scientific discussions of plant and animal life, or of all life, really. Hippocrates, the Greek physician, noted that the Scythians, who at the time were basically all of the people of Northern Europe, uh, this would be around the 5th century BCE, are red, flabby, unhealthy, and filled with water because they live in a cold, wet climate. On the other hand, Vitruvius, the Roman architect, not to be outdone by the Greeks, uh, and of course following the Greeks, stated that people from dry, hot climates, such as Ethiopians, are long-lived and healthy, dark-skinned because of sunburn, intelligent and cowardly because they didn't have blood to spare for fighting because the heat dries it up. Whereas the Germans, red-haired and pale due to cold burn, are dull-witted but courageous due to the wet climate lending them more blood so they didn't have to worry about losing any of it on the battlefield. So the Greeks and Romans based their ideas of how people behaved and lived primarily on the climate and environment in which they lived, rather than any inherited traits. The Greeks and Romans believed in a sort of Lamarckian evolution, wherein descendants could inherit learned or acquired traits from their ancestors. So the idea that the Greeks, especially 
and the whitewashed version of Rome is some sort of beacon for us to emulate is easily disabused if you simply scratch the surface. Okay, so let us move on now and talk about something completely different, but also pretty much the same. Because <laughs> we're going to be talking about how to change attitudes like that and what to do about it. <sighs> Let's move from the ancient past to the present and talk about the police and what we can do with them. Interestingly, according to 538s, the police police killings have declined in major cities in recent years. However, it has increased in the suburbs and rural areas, which has led to the rate remaining paradoxically stable. Using data from 23 of the 30 most populous cities in the U.S., a drop of 37% was found from 2013 to 2019. In addition, since 2013, the number of those jailed per capita in urban areas has fallen by 22%, while rates have increased by 26% in rural areas, according to a study by the Vera Institute of Justice. Now, many of these cities have seen a decline uh, because they have had to change their use of force policies following protests uh, for and in such cities as Baltimore following the killing of Freddie Gray, San Francisco following the killing of Mario Woods, Chicago after, after the death of Laquan McDonald, and other major areas where a high-profile police killing has led to large-scale protests. This suggests, frankly, that protesting and changes to policy and training are both leading to decreased deaths. However, there is the problem of the increase in other areas. More Latinos are being killed in the suburbs, while more white people are being killed in rural areas. This uptick in other areas may be due to the policy of selling surplus military gear to police departments for little or no money. The increased militarization of police leads to more opportunity for violence and can lead to shootings and death. It's one of the first things I think needs to be addressed in any serious discussion of how we reform police, if that is what we plan to do. I personally believe in the abolition of both modern police forces and the uh, prison industrial complex, which we haven't had much of a discussion about in recent days because we've had such a uh, visceral need to speak about uh, police officers themselves. Now, I personally think as you might figure, uh, that the system is uh, irretrievably broken and needs to be completely dismantled. Like with most things in this country, the ills we see here are linked not only to racism, but also inexorably to capitalism, which values property over the lives of people and expects its police force to do the same. George Floyd died for passing a fake $20 bill. Whatever faults or prior bad deeds he may have done, he was killed for passing a fake $20 bill. We cannot continue to pretend that this isn't an insane fact, that the emphasis on law and order leads not to peace, but to chaos for many of our most vulnerable populations. And part of the issue is the fact that police officers don't even understand that they are treating black people differently. 
White supremacy is so deeply ingrained in the system that even officers of color often act out these ideas. In 2016, several years after the development of the Black Lives Movement, a Pew Research poll of almost 8,000 police officers across the country found that 67% believed that the killings of Black people were isolated incidents rather than a part of a larger pattern. Only 31% said they thought it was part of a pattern. On the other hand, civilians responded in almost the exact opposite way, with 60% suggesting it was part of a broader pattern and only 39% saying they were isolated incidences. Only 35% of officers said they believed protests were motivated at least in part by, quote, a genuine desire to hold officers accountable. 92% said the protests reflected at least in part a long-standing bias against the police. Of course, without interrogating at all why that may be. Now, the study did find less extreme views among Black and female officers, but we know that our police departments are predominantly white, male, and frankly conservative. Policing has always been a dangerous profession, but groups like Black Lives Matters by inaccurately demonizing police as racists who kill innocent people, have made policing more dangerous than ever before, a police union leader in Boston wrote in a February 4 letter to the local teachers' unit, union, excuse me, uh, as reported by the Boston Globe. It's pretty mind-blowing to those who have a better grasp of our country's rich and varied history of racism and authoritarianism to read such a statement without some feeling discomforted at best and most likely with some level of anger. 80% of police officers said the country did not need to do more for for African-Americans to give them equal footing to white Americans. Only 48% of the general public feel that way, though I would say we need to work on decreasing that number as well. I myself was arguing with someone on Twitter the other day who was insisting that affirmative action makes it so that African Americans actually have a better chance than white people today. That always is amazing to me how much they cling to that idea. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, but, um, and we're going to stay here, but I do want to move on, um, about in a little switch a little bit. Um, and of course, before we do that, I do want to remind you that we are finishing up our fund drive this weekend. And so if you have a few dollars to spare, please go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. We are again, an all volunteer station. All of the money goes to things like electricity, rent, and new equipment. And we continue to be a source for alternative voices, including black and indigenous people of color and LGBTQIA voices. So what can we do to change the system? How do we create a vision of a better police force? Again, let's assume we're not going to get the political will to abolish the police at this time. The first and frankly, just ridiculously absent thing is a federal level database of police killings and use of force. Since the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014, several private and nonprofit groups have developed their own databases, which is the only reason we can positively tell that Black people 
make approximately 24% of deaths, despite making up only 13% of the population. I say 24% approximately because these databases rely on publicly available information. Data on, pol on policing is notoriously terrible, said Casey Delahanty, a political science a political scientist at Gardner-Webb University in North Carolina. It's very spotty. It's unreliable and often inaccurate. And this has really precluded a lot of study and understanding and also accountability in real time of local, state, and federal police. There is no central repository for complaints against police officers. There is no central database for inventorying the military supplies that have been given to police departments. There is no central database of police officers who have been cited for domestic violence, drunk driving, or other offenses. Edward Lawson, Edward Lawson Jr., now a data analytics researcher for the state of, for the state government of South Carolina, tells the story of trying to ask the federal government for information concerning military supplies given to police. He was told that they reused the same documents each quarter prior, they reused the same document each quarter prior to 2014, so that each quarter the previous information was simply overwritten rather than saved. The government literally hadn't bothered to keep records. And speaking of military supplies, another hugely important next step is to demilitarize the police. Items such as grenade launchers, bayonets, and mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, or MRAPs, should not be given to police departments to deal with domestic issues. These are weapons of war. And of course, we shouldn't be dealing in war either, but that's a whole separate uh, <laughs> speech for a whole separate day. And so the idea that police officers are being given all of this surplus military gear and frankly are not being trained in its proper use is frankly terrifying. Delahanty and Lawson both found that police departments that are more militarized kill more people. In 2018, Lawson and colleagues found that in all 50 states between 2014 and 16, the number of death, deaths rose with militarization, even after controlling for other factors. In 2017, Delahunty and colleagues found that in four states, Connecticut, Maine, Nevada, and New Hampshire, the most militarily equipped departments killed 0.656 people per year, whereas those with no militarization had 0.287 killings per year, less than half as many. Delahunty found that militarization became a cycle, wherein the equipment increased the violent force used by departments. Those who didn't add equipment could see a 0. A 0.068 drop in suspect deaths, while those who had increased gear had a 0.188 increase in deaths. This went even so far as to spread to the death of dogs. And if you haven't seen uh, the statistics about dog deaths in this country, it's frankly terrifying. Um, more militarization simply led to more violence in general. Now, the next important idea is training and regulation. While we know that some training is not particularly evidence-based at the moment, 
like implicit bias training, there is some experimental evidence to show that trainings in procedural justice, which focuses on fairness, did reduce police officers' likelihood of ending an encounter with arrest or using force. The problems with training are that that they are often poorly run and regulated. Policies can help with that, and this is some of what we're seeing in cities that have had major occurrences which have required them to rethink their approach. A few of the big ones are to require de-escalation before using force, banning actions like chokeholds or restraints that require pressure to be applied to vulnerable areas such as the neck and chest, requiring officers to report excessive force under threat of being charged as an accessory, and an overlooked one in this current debate that my husband reminded me of the other day, which is banning high-speed car chases. And as much as it pains me as a leftist to suggest this, we should legislate limits to what the police unions can negotiate in terms of actions that can be taken when excessive force is used. Many union-negotiated contracts limit the scope of what punishment can be meted out for bad behavior. We also need to have oversight boards that have broad powers, including recommending prosecution, which must be taken to a grand jury. Officers who have been prosecuted or have more than a certain number of complaints against them would not be able to be hired by other agencies. And finally, and most importantly, we need to invest in alternatives to policing. This is my go-to, absolutely, for for what should be done. We should be defunding police and prisons, and frankly, starting from scratch. The money used on police and prisons should be invested in communities and in greater mental health support across the nation. When mental health facilities around the nation were closed in the 1980s and 1990s under the guise of cost-saving and eliminating bad conditions, people with mental health issues were left to fend for themselves, with many ending up homeless and untreated. Police are often the people who deal with this population now, and they are ill-equipped at best to handle such encounters. I've seen countless videos of people who clearly needed mental health intervention being hurt or killed by police officers who just clearly had no training in how to deal with people having mental health crises. We need to invest in nonprofits that offer a variety of social and economic services that offer opportunities rather than punishment. Studies show that areas with more nonprofits have lower rates of violence. We can't keep doing the same things that we've been doing. It didn't work in the 60s and it doesn't work today. Police officers are still killing black people at a disproportionate rate. And we know that this is a problem and we have to fix it. Um, and just as a wrap up, um, cause there's been a lot of rhetoric out there and there's a lot of white people who want to use Martin Luther King to scold those who have been rioting and, uh, otherwise more forcefully protesting. And I just want to remind people that by the end of his life, Martin Luther King Jr. understood the importance of violence in, at least in the idea of being civilly disobedient. He didn't want people to be rioting necessarily, but 
the idea of standing somewhere in a designated area where you are allowed to be was not the kind of protest that he encouraged. The idea was civil disobedience. It was to push people to cause chaos in order to make them understand that you were done being people who played by their rules. And he also was a socialist. He understood the connection between people's poverty and the problems that they had. And he understood how that disproportionately affected black populations. And so he believed in both economic and social justice for not only his people, but all Americans. And so please, please do not think that Martin Luther King would not be proud of the people who have been protesting because he would be extremely proud of them. And so that's all I have for tonight. Um, please, if you can, uh, do go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate and um, pitch in if you can to help keep this station going. All right. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.